Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 23 for the first quarter of May 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is going to be somewhat short, and that's that of the Flat Earth. Perhaps we should start with some of the claimed history for the idea that the Earth is actually flat. One can start with the basic idea of just look around you. If you grew up in an isolated part of the world, away from any modern civilization, and isolated from other civilizations, their knowledge, their modes of transportation, or pretty much anything else, how would you actually know that the Earth was round? You would know that it had some topography, it had some ups and downs, but in isolation, it would be really hard to tell that you lived on a sphere rather than on a plane. It takes some experimentation, a larger perspective imagery, or some other science measurements in order to tell from the ground that Earth is actually round. Now, it's often believed that ancient Greeks and Romans thought that Earth was flat. To the contrary, at least some of them did know that Earth is a sphere, and they had a pretty darn good estimate of its circumference that I'll talk more about on later, but it bears mentioning for historic purposes during this historic discussion. Moving forward through time, no discussion of the flat Earth would be complete without a brief discussion of the Christian Bible. Since, like it or not, this one collection of works held significant sway over much of the world for many centuries, and so how people interpreted it is important. First, there are many passages in the Bible that say Earth is immobile. For example, Psalm 96.10 says, He has fixed the Earth firm, immovable. Other parts talk about the sky as being a vault that covers Earth, or one that's fixed entirely, such as Isaiah 48.13, which says, With my right hand I formed the expanse of the sky. Other parts imply, if not actually flat-out state, no pun intended, that Earth is flat. For example, Daniel 10-11 through 11 talks about a tree that's so tall it's visible from all parts of Earth. If Earth is round, then that's impossible. It's only possible if Earth is flat. I'll link up to a page that presents more of these arguments and others in the show notes, but really suffice to say, if someone is a Christian and they want to believe that the planet is flat, then they can easily find Bible verses that will support their position. It also bears mentioning that, despite many hardcore Christians today stating that the Bible must be read literally, with absolutely whatsoever no exceptions, they still reinterpret these passages to mean that Earth is not flat. Moving on, with that brief history out of the way, there is a modern flat Earth society. It's honestly hard to tell if these people really believe Earth is flat, or whether this falls under Poe's Law. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Poe's Law, in my own words, Poe's Law states that there are some claims that people believe that are so incredibly stupid that a made-up parody is often indistinguishable from the claims that people will actually believe. So, we'll sort of assume that even if this is a Poe's Law instance, that there are one or two people out there who really believe this stuff, so I'm going to go into it anyway. As I said, this will be a short episode. The proposed model 
is that Earth is a cylinder with a flat surface, and we're on one of those flat surfaces. The cylinder is tall enough for there to still be what they call a core, which they say is what creates volcanism. The map of the surface is claimed to look like the United Nations flag. You know, again, this whole worldwide conspiracy that must be the case if we live on a flat Earth. The UN flag shows the North Pole at the center, and all of the continents are spread out radially from it, with the continents that are close to Antarctica all squished up. The claim is that Antarctica is really a vast wall of mountains that are covered in ice that keep the oceans from falling off the planet. Gravity is caused by a constant acceleration upwards, upwards being away from Earth's surface up towards the sky, and they have various methods and models for how the atmosphere supposedly stays here. One of those is a great dome that keeps it in. The other is a magical dark energy field, not to be confused with the astronomy term dark energy, but they have co-opted the term to mean whatever they want it to mean. In their model, the sun and the moon orbit above us in a circle. Both the sun and the moon are 32 miles or 50 kilometers each across, and they orbit about 3,000 miles or 5,000 kilometers above sea level. They're also spotlights, which is why we get day and night in different parts of the world, because they're spotlights that only aim at certain spots on the planet. Stars are another 100 miles above the sun and the moon. As I said, this could be posed law in the works, but on the fact, on their wiki, which again I'll link up to in the show notes, the first answer to the first question is, this site is not a joke. There are people who seriously believe the Earth is flat. However, there are also people who do not. Again, it could very well be a joke, but we'll assume that it isn't for purposes here. The Flat Earth Society website presents a few reasons for not believing Earth is flat. I'm only going to go briefly into two of them. First is that Earth can't orbit the Sun because there's no way for it to maintain its velocity over billions of years, and because when you orbit an object, there's an acceleration that any object ahead will cause to get squished, and any object behind would float away. I want to talk about the first one because it raises two basic physics concepts. The first part is really Newton's first law, or at least answered by Newton's first law. The velocity of an object remains constant unless the body is acted on by an external force. What that means is that, yes, there have been some very tiny perturbations to Earth's orbit over the past few billion years, but overall, there has not been a large enough external force to change Earth's velocity or its orbit around the Sun. So, because there hasn't been an external force, it keeps going and going and going and going. The reason why a lot of people may have trouble making sense of this idea that something that can keep going at the same rate for billions of years is because on Earth, we almost always, unless you're in a very special lab, have friction. And friction is an external force that will slow things down. The other part of this first claim has to do with reference frames and acceleration and velocities. Our reference frame is effectively a moving object. To us, this object is stationary for all practical considerations. 
Our motion is completely relative to Earth because it's the dominant gravitational field that affects us, and it's, it's our reference frame. So it doesn't matter if you're temporarily on the leading or trailing side of the planet. You're not going to get squished, or you're not going to fall off. The fact that we're here kind of proves that. The next claim is somewhat related to the first. Objects on a curved surface would fall off, sliding quote-unquote down until they reach the bottom and fall off. The misconception here is the concept of down. Again, in our reference frame, down is towards Earth's center of gravity, which is within the core of the planet. No matter where you are, on any point on the surface, you will always be pulled towards the center of the planet as opposed to an arbitrary down point, like the South Pole, and then fall off. Again, not just actually the surface, but if you're in orbit or if you're inside of the planet, you're still going to get pulled towards the center of Earth because that's the dominant gravitational field. If you get significantly far away, such as really close to the moon, then your down reference frame is going to be towards the moon's center. With all that said, there are many, many ways to demonstrate that Earth is round, especially in this day and age not the least of which are photos from space. Also, there's circumnavigation and other things. Predictably, the flat Earth people generally just say that it's all a vast conspiracy and none of it is real. Again, I'm not making this up. They say this on their wiki, that all the photos from NASA, all of these satellite images, all this other stuff, they're all faked. Again, this could be Poe's Law. So, in the place of modern techniques, I'm going to describe two different ways that really anyone can use if they wanted. And they're both ways that people hundreds or thousands of years ago used in order to show that Earth is round. The first was figured out by the Greek named Eratosthenes, which I alluded to in the quick history lesson at the beginning. Eratosthenes figured that if Earth is round, then shadows cast by the same height object at different latitudes on Earth at the same time of day would be different. With some trigonometry, you can calculate the circumference of the planet. And this is actually a lab that I taught to intro astronomy students about five or six years ago in Colorado. We did this Eratosthenes experiment to show that the Earth is round, and I had my students calculate the circumference of the planet. They actually did a little bit worse than Eratosthenes. Eratosthenes was able to figure out the circumference of Earth to within 2% of the value that we have today. Most of my students got it to about 10%. But that's pretty darn good for a guy who lived 2,200 years ago. And that's still pretty good for intro astronomy students who are not science majors at all. The other method was supposedly used by Galileo. He figured that if Earth were flat, then the shadow cast by it on the moon during a lunar eclipse would also be flat. It's not. Since Earth is round, then Earth's shadow on the moon regardless of what part of Earth is facing the moon, is also round. And really, that's about all I wanted to say about the flat Earth idea. Under 12 minutes. This episode's Q&A question comes from Gary S. from the Thin Country of Israel, who asks, 
I've heard all of your debunking on the Planet X nuts, but I'm reading Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything, which is not a nut job, and I came across this paragraph. A few astronomers continue to think that there may be a Planet X out there, a real whopper, perhaps as much as ten times the size of Jupiter, but so far out as to be invisible to us. It would receive so little sunlight that it would have almost none to reflect. The idea is that it wouldn't be a conventional planet like Jupiter or Saturn. It's much too far away for that, we're talking perhaps 4.5 trillion miles, but more like a sun that never quite made it. Most star systems in the cosmos are binary, or double stars, which makes our solitary sun a slight oddity. Is there anything in what these few astronomers think? The short answer to Gary's question is yes. The longer answer is also yes. It's entirely possible that there is another object in the far outer solar system, well beyond the orbit of Pluto, and it could be several times Earth's mass. It's hard to make it many times Jupiter's mass, at least if it's anywhere reasonably close by, but it can at least be several times Earth's. There is an observed phenomenon called the Kuiper Cliff, which I'll link to in the show notes, where we observe that the Kuiper Belt objects, which are these objects like comets that orbit out around Pluto and farther out, they fall off in density and number density at about 50 times the Earth's on distance, when models suggested that they should increase in number. Some people have suggested that a large, unseen, planet-sized object is sweeping out this area clean of objects, although this planet-sized object has yet to be observed. So as I said, it is possible, and there may be ancillary evidence that one does exist. It's just when you claim that it's going to come by in seven months and no one's seen it yet, or that it's being hidden by some government conspiracy, that we start to get into the pseudoscience. So this wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available. Though the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. There's going to be a lot of feedback in this episode, so if you don't like the feedback, you might want to skip forward quite a bit. First up, regarding last episode on the Billy Meyer UFO case. As I expected, based upon past experience when I've posted about Billy Meyer's stuff, there were a few people who came out of the woodwork and decided to present their case with numerous insults in the comment section of my blog. What I found intriguing and really the only reason that I'm bringing this up, is that despite the essay-length comments, there was no real refutation of the actual substance. There were some quibbling about minor details. For example, whether Meyer's arm was amputated below or above the elbow, and how exactly he lost it, or when exactly, or how exactly, or why exactly, Meyer used the term plejarin or playarin as opposed to Pleiadian, which is more popular in today's New Age culture. There was also a link to a pretty poor, in my opinion, attempt to refute the Ascot and Nera photo, which still missed the main point that Meyer himself said the photo was real, until it was pointed out that it looked like a photograph from the Dean Martin Variety Show, and then he started to claim that the men in black planted it. I'll again make the point that I made in the last episode. Meyer has put forward many, many claims that his story is real. Derek, the 
guy interviewed, along with numerous other people, have shown that many of the claims are either false or are more easily explained by the conventional idea that he made them up, like he created a model UFO. Unless you want to go on faith, in which case no amount of evidence will dissuade you, and I'm not sure why you listen to this, then the onus is really on Meyer to produce indisputable evidence for his story. A photo of a dinosaur that he claims he took on a time-traveling spaceship with no windows that turns out to be an exact copy of an illustration in a book is not indisputable evidence. And, if you want to say, okay, maybe Billy did make that one up, the question should be, why? If the other stuff was genuine, shouldn't that have stood on its own? Why should have he had to make up that particular claim? And why should we believe the others are real if it's clear that that one was made up? Obviously, these are rhetorical questions, and if you believe the Meyer story, as I said, there's no way that I'll be convincing you. But if you're on the fence, or if you're someone who actually trusts the rules of logic and evidence, and you have some spare time, head over to my blog post for episode 32 and scroll through the comments to see how Myers fans choose to argue. Moving back one episode further, I have a correction to make, although I'm going to claim that it was a test for the listeners. In episode 31, I stated... If the Apollo missions landed on the night side, they would have not been able to communicate with Earth. Clearly, based upon my very first episode, this was a wrong statement. Again, a test for the listeners. I should have said that if the Apollo missions had landed on the far side, not the night side, since far side and night side are two very, very different things. Also in that episode... I played a brief clip from a century-old recording of My Country, Tis of Thee, one of those very patriotic American songs that we learn in primary school here in the States. What they don't teach us in primary school, in America at least, is that the basic tune is the British National Anthem, something that Claren from Ireland pointed out in the comments section of the show notes for that episode. Also, Donovan, a.k.a. Ravenhall, decided to follow up my answer to their Q&A question asking if Mars' lack of a magnetic field would have been a problem in any terraforming effort of the planet. The answer is yes. But there was more follow-up on that point from James F. He pointed out that gravity does play a fairly large role in retaining an atmosphere, reminding me that Venus has no magnetic field, but it has an atmosphere that is so heavy that it's like being under a kilometer of water on Earth. While the magnetic field probably does help somewhat, gravity seems to also play a larger role than I had also thought or considered. In addition to this, you do miss some of the replenishing aspects. So on Earth, our atmosphere is continuously replenished through volcanism and other things, other gases seeping out from the interior. We think the same thing also happens somewhat on Venus. Mars, at least as far as we can tell so far, is geologically dead in the sense of major volcanic activity. We haven't seen any lava flows on Mars that we can date to anything younger than about 100 million years old. I should know because I was involved in that work. Meanwhile, I have feedback related to general show things. I've gotten some conflicting feedback regarding the tone of the show that I thought I'd mention. Whether it's really worth bringing up or not is perhaps debatable. 
Garrett F. from Canada wrote in to critique several things, but the bottom line was probably captured by this sentence. I have found some interesting material in your shows, but I am getting kind of tired of your obsession with debunking morons from coast-to-coast radio. Are they really that important? Literally, an hour later, Holden from the SGU message board sent me a private message that stated in part, Keep up the good work, and just dropping a line to let you know said work is highly appreciated. I really like it when you debunk extra crazy stuff, expletive removed, like Richard Hoagland or anything from coast to coast. There is something just hypnotic about that kind of crazy, and it's nice to hear that it's wrong, but I really appreciate how you walk through every little step of why it's wrong and how we know that. The reason I bring these up is that I thought it might be a good time to remind you, the listeners, of my insidious plan and why I do this, why I use crazy things like Coast to Coast or potentially Poe's Law-esque ideas as launching points for this podcast program. I do it because, well, first off, I do find it somewhat fascinating that people really believe this, or seem to believe it, and there is a certain amount of pleasure begotten from picking it to shreds. But on the larger picture, I do it because I think it's often easier to remember what is really going on when you have an example of how people have used it incorrectly. For example, if I were to have a dry lecture-type podcast where I sat down and explained how heat is transferred between objects, everyone would be bored out of their mind. But when I talk about the Apollo moon hoax ideas and camera film that would either freeze or melt by some people's claims, and then explain why that's not the case by explaining how heat is transferred between objects, I think that it's more likely that people will remember it. So yes, I am actually trying to teach you something beyond how to debunk the crazies. I'm trying to also demonstrate how the world works, how we know how it works, and how we can apply it to everyday things, and also how these concepts apply to everyday things. Like when I talked about heat transfer, I talked about cooking. I cook a lot. I do realize that this is not everybody's cup of tea, and not everyone is going to get that, or they're not going to necessarily like it even if they do get it. If you don't like it, don't listen. If you feel the need to leave a negative review because you don't like it, that's perfectly fine. I just ask that you be fair in your review of why you didn't like it. And with all that said, it's time for the puzzler, where each odd quarter episode I attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was effectively this. The short version is, take a series of photographs of the moon and stars, exposed once properly for each, and then using your camera settings for the stars on the moon and vice versa. Congratulations goes to Trevor on my blog for being the first and only to supply an answer and put it together in a YouTube video that I'll link to in the show notes. His video starts with an exposure of the moon at one five thousandth of a second, which is actually a little bit short, and I think he had the ISO boosted. But he ends with an exposure of the moon that's completely saturated at six seconds long, but you can finally see stars. You can start to see stars in his sequence starting at about 0.85 seconds long, but the moon is completely saturated by about 1 150th of a second. Again, 
I should note that if you do want to try this on your own, just for fun, his exposure settings do seem about 10 times too short to me, meaning that he probably had the ISO pretty high. For this week's Puzzler with the main segment on the Flat Earth, I'm not going to ask you a question based on the Flat Earth. I'm going to skip ahead with the Puzzler and do one to get you starting to think about the topic I'll be discussing for May 16th's episode on Photography Claims of the Apollo Moon Hoax, Part 2. The question is, can two different objects, when illuminated by a single distant light source, ever cast non-parallel shadows? And don't answer this with just yes or no, especially if you've seen Mythbusters. If you can, take a photo to support your answer. That would be the best. Try to figure out the answer. Send it into puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the next Odd Quarter episode. Oh, and if you don't know the answer off the top of your head, try to experiment a little bit. Again, the goal here is to teach science and the scientific method. If you don't know the answer experiment to try to figure it out. It shouldn't take you that long. By way of announcements, two quick ones. First, a reminder that I will be at TAM this year in Las Vegas. Send me an email if you have any interest in meeting up if you're attending. Second, don't forget that you can find me online, podcast.sjrdesign.net. I'm also on Facebook under, just do a search for, Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy. You can also find me personally on Twitter, as Doctor, that's D-R, Astro Stew, S-T-U, not S-T-E-W. Or you can find the podcast on Twitter as Pseudo Astro. That wraps up the 33rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. If you normally listen to this end matter, then you already know what's coming up, so I'm just going to leave it at that and let you listen to the rest of the music. <laughs>